Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. We got to stand together on common ground. We got to be together or we all fall down. Welcome to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. This Is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. In this episode, we talk with Melissa Weintraub, founder and co-executive director of Resetting the Table. Resetting the Table focuses on building dialogue and deliberation across political divides, focusing on seemingly intractable differences that are breeding distrust, a lack of empathy, and marginalization. As part of their work, Resetting the Table produced the film Purple, which uncovers the humanity beneath our national conflicts. You can watch Purple and find out more information at resettingthetable.org slash purple. Welcome, Melissa. Talk to me a little bit about um, about resetting the table. How did this come about and what are the goals? So we work to strengthen democracy through collaborative deliberation across political silos in American life. Um, we do intensive facilitation and convener training, dialogue and um, decision-making forums on contentious issues and a host of other programs. We've brought more than 29,000 Americans together from a sweeping range of backgrounds and viewpoints, many of them clergy, campus professionals, journalists, others who act as societal conveners. That's our, our target audience, our primary target, people who are organically bringing together diverse constituencies, helping them to do that well and to build a culture of dialogue and deliberation in their communities and in their institutions. Uh, Our overall vision, our overall goal is to rebuild a shared sense of we in American life um, without papering over our differences, uh, supporting the recognition, um, care, insight, collaboration um, with our counterparts, particularly our political counterparts, that's our focus, and their humanity and aspirations and needs. Um, And we see that as critical to violence prevention, restoration of social cohesion and social fabric in the US, creative problem solving, the capacity to move forward as a shared democracy, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and those are such important goals. And Civity has similar goals is to get people to connect on a we level to hear each other's stories and to, to reach across socially salient differences. But it's a lofty goal and it's hard. And, and so when you say, you know, bring the we back and help people connect with that, I mean, how do we do that for, for real? How do we actually get at that challenge? Yeah, um, there's so many different ways and that's why it's good that there's a whole ecosystem of initiatives that we are working alongside like Civity and, and so many others because this is a big problem to crack. There's a lot of root causes and variables to get at from how media functions to geographic and ideological sorting, just all the ways that people are separate from people who are different than themselves in America today and um, all of the problems that that creates in terms of um, mutual incomprehension that becomes mutual vilification and dehumanization so often. 
so there's a lot of a lot of ways and a lot of the work that we do. It was pre-COVID in person, and it was a lot about breaking open stuck patterns of communication and helping people into empathy and recognition for each other's lived experiences, for each other's moral and political lenses, just coming into those aha moments of how people actually see things. Um, we were always frustrated with questions of scale. We reached about 5,000 people a year in that kind of in-person programming that's now become virtual programming, um, which is why we have moved into content creation as well as training journalists to try to do work at a bigger scale that's changing, overcoming some of the perception gaps that we have of each other, these kinds of cartoonish caricatures that we have of our counterparts, changing some of the storylines that we have about each other, just restoring hope about who our counterparts are because of that, that vilification and dehumanization. I absolutely want to get into your work training journalists because that is so found. I am a former journalist that is so foundational, but I want to ask first about, you talked about really seeing examples of, oh, this, this isn't how I should view you at all. You're actually a living, breathing, full human. Do you have any anecdotes or any specific stories where this has come up in your work that, that where it struck you or where it really resonated with you? So many. But one that, that came up when you asked the question in that way, something I didn't say is our organizational origins were focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and I can tell more of that story. But the launch of our work on U.S. red, blue, purple and rural urban divides took place in rural Wisconsin and Iowa in the heart of the area that um, flipped in the 2016 election Obama to Trump, like there were more counties that flipped there than anywhere else in the country. And we brought a team of 36 facilitators and interns with us to do a listening campaign and a whole series of dialogue forums there. So our interns were coming from schools, kind of deep blue enclaves, progressive bubble institutions like Oberlin and UC Berkeley and Brown. I think it's not an exaggeration to say that for many of them, the program was as much of a cultural exchange program as one taking place around the globe. One of them said something that's always stayed with me. She said, I feel like I've just been conditioned to only understand and relate to stereotypes of virtually all the perspectives I'm hearing, rather than the perspectives themselves and their own internal logic, let alone the human beings behind them. That kind of embodies the perception gaps that we bring with us. Um, just there's so much projection on virtually every issue from abortion to guns to the rule of government. There was a kind of awakening and just seeing the political landscape very differently from listening to people, you know, which is something that we need to be trained to do, and then we need to be initiated into opportunities to do in America today to understand where other people are coming from, um, rather than um, just project onto them or assumptions about where they're coming from. Yeah. And you said earlier the idea that when we don't understand or when something feels unfamiliar, we might become uncomfortable with it and then vilify it. And so bringing people together face to face can really, I mean, it can be scary at first, but it can really help diffuse that that tendency we have as humans. I mean, it's a human tendency. Oh, it's unfamiliar. I'm going to be cautious. And then I might go down a road that's that's not very healthy as far as how we engage. Um, I, I wonder if you have any other anecdotes you want to share with that regard. And it can be either the red-blue work or or even if you want to go back to the how you, how you started with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's so many. And some of it is about this kind of rehumanization. Some of it is about people being seen as they wish to be seen and the ways that that is healing and is relieving. You know, another example that came to mind, I was I was thinking about how at the end of that experience in, in rural Wisconsin and Iowa, we did 
a really a large kind of town square forum. And at the end of it, all the evangelical conservatives in the room kind of stood up. Two of them stood up and been sitting at a table and then like created this ripple and several of them stood up and applauded. Um, and then, you know, when they, they said, they just kind of gave the standing ovation and we said like, what, what is this about? Like what's happened? And they said like, they'd never been in a room like this without being subjected to a firing squad. Like there was just like this kind of sense that we can't be honest. We can't tackle the hard stuff. We can't come into genuine encounter with people who are, have deeply committed progressive moral commitments and be ourselves and be seen as who we actually are rather than turned into these kind of vile monsters. So that's something else that stayed with me, just kind of like the relief of actually people actually being seen as they see themselves. I think that the the fear that you were talking about, there's so many things that feed into that fear, but a lot of it comes from media caricature. Like if you just kind of enter evangelical into the New York Times, the Washington Post, virtually everything that comes up is negative. And it's all about the ways that evangelicals are causing harm and none of it is about evangelicals on their own terms when evangelicals are a huge stream of the American population and people who don't have any contact with religious conservatives. Like if you're just reading the Washington Post and the New York Times, then you're going to come up with a whole series of assumptions about who evangelicals are that is completely disconnected from how evangelicals see themselves on their own terms. But often people just have breakthroughs of insight and, and ahas. Um, we had a, a red-blue workshop Earlier this week, where several people who are coming from conservative standpoints realized that they didn't understand Black Lives Matter, that they had been like kind of coming in with all of these assumptions of Black Lives Matter that were just false. And a lot of that was also fed by conservative media portrayals of the protest, which has its, you know, dehumanization in a very mere image way. And it just took creating an environment in which they felt like they were being seen as themselves and so they could become less defensive and more receptive and overcome their own confirmation bias and motivated reasoning to take in new information and ideas. And, you know, we just, one of them said, I realized I had no idea what Black Lives Matter was coming into this, and you just taught me something. And then a few others piped in and said that they had a very similar experience. We aren't often explicitly pushing people toward collaboration, like actually working together to solve problems. Like our work is about establishing the relationships and the communication and the those kinds of insight breakthroughs that allow people to discover if they want to collaborate. And then we kind of hand them off to others. But a lot of collaborations emerge from the programs that we do. Um, you know, for example, we did a, a program, a Red Blue Divides workshop in Texas that included people who were working at municipal governments on different sides of various divides. And we had people who were working on the gun issue, coming at things from very different perspectives. They thought that they were diametrically opposed coming in. There was a lot of kind of, you know, we're coming from, like we are just gonna clash and escalate if we actually talk about this. But what they realized um, when they went towards their differences and investigated them with support, which is the core part of our methodology, that they agreed about 98% of the picture. And there was a lot that they could do together on the gun issue, on gun policy and preventing gun violence, and that the 2% that they disagreed about was actually worth tackling and investigating because they were learning things from each other. So that's a very common kind of experience in the, in the workshop version of what we do, that people uh, realize in part by going towards their differences non-avoidantly, you know, fearlessly yeah. with support, 
that they agree about far more than they thought they did and they can work together and they can take the part that they disagree on. They can simply learn from it or become partners in exploration around it. When the evangelicals got up and gave the standing ovation, was there uh, anything of note in the response of the progressives in the room as far as, uh, as that that moment goes? Just curious. That's such a good question. It wasn't a dramatic reaction um, and it wasn't really made explicit. And so that's why I'm, I'm hesitating because I, I'm kind of, reading the room. I think that progressives tend to be a little startled by the way that conservatives experience this sense of embattlement and being shut down. It's really important to name and acknowledge that particularly in the last four years that so many progressives have felt just like completely threatened under attack, like the populations that they care about, marginalized populations, like lives are at stake. This isn't just about politics. People's very identities and existences are at stake and are vulnerable and are being threatened. And so this isn't just a matter of debate or exchanging opinions. Like there are real things at stake and basic rights are at stake. So it's, I think when people are in that mindset, which is completely understandable, then when conservatives talk about like having relationships cut off and feeling like they're vilified, there's a kind of so be it, like you deserve it, you know, or you're doing, you know, you're doing it to yourselves and we have to be honest and I'm not, I don't care if, if like I'm shutting you down or I'm cutting off this relationship because uh, you are participating in, like you're shoring up systems that are um, threatening my life, my very life and the lives of the people that I love and care about. And then there also is like a sense, I think, among progressives that that people are having a kind of um, wanting to redirect attention or distract attention to themselves, like they just don't want to give up power. And so they're talking about their own persecution. I think that there is a lot of ways that, that, you know, blind spots are called blind spots for reasons. Hegemony is called hegemony for reasons. And I find that in today's America, despite all of everything that I've just said, which is really important to give recognition to, progressives are really not aware of their own hegemony over a lot of institutions of American life, like the degree to which the mainstream media and academia and the entertainment industry, just so many of the kind of cultural engines of American life and the intellectual engines of American life uh, do disparage, mock, and demonize conservatives. And as well as just purple people and a lot of people who are in flyover country who don't identify with progressive politics, so-called flyover country in quotes. So, All that is to say, like, there's a lot of work to do on and kind of in every direction. But I think that that, you know, in this area, these were these were not coastal progressives who have no contact with conservatives. And so but I I think that they were they were still kind of startled at the degree of relief and emotion, kind of emotional outpouring among the conservatives at simply being an environment where they weren't castigated for being themselves. You just said something really fascinating. First of all, that's incredible. But you just said something really interesting, the degree to which progressives have uh, positions in the hegemony, in the hegemonic structure. And I was thinking that that is true to an extent, but I, I also was thinking, gosh, that's funny because people of color and women often even progressive w- women and people of color feel shut out from the narratives of the mainstream media or of Hollywood or of academe, like how difficult is it for a person of color to really get a tenure track position in academia? So I'm like, wow, there, there's actually potentially this point of connection or point of 
uh, where actually it's happening to both groups and that there's some something anyway anyway you just I hadn't even considered that until you said it and then now I'm wanting to play with that idea more and explore it because I would say gosh I think there are people in the progressive group who also feel very shut out of of that and so progressive group would think oh well mainstream media is predominantly owned by conservative voices conservative but yet the conservative side would say well it's predominantly people who believe a certain thing that are on the air who are talking who are out in public and I, I, do, I think there's a lot of fascinating um, conversation to be had in that space because I think neither side accepts its piece of the own, of ownership in that space. There's been some studies that have shown that the groups that are most distrustful of mainstream media are conservatives, libertarians, Christians who are more right-leaning Christians, rural people, and people of color, essentially. It's like all of the groups that don't feel like First of all, that they have representation in the newsroom, and that even if they have representation in the newsroom, that it's cosmetic representation, maybe it's tokenizing, but it doesn't actually impact the stories that are told, who's interviewed, and how they're heard, and that the stories of their communities are not actually given accurate representation. So that's that's what drove us into wanting to work with journalists, because there is for sure an intersection between communities of color and uh, and rural and conservative. So let's talk about your work with journalists. I would love to hear more about how you're, how Resetting the Table is approaching this and a little bit more about your work in, in the newsroom space. We walked away from our the first wave of work that we did in Wisconsin and Iowa. There were several different pieces of this, but one piece was what I described earlier in terms of our interns who uh, said, like, I've just been conditioned to encounter only stereotypes of the views that I'm hearing and not the views themselves and only the human beings behind them. Like that was kind of a headline experience for so many of us. And we felt like the story that was told about this place, even the simple story of the Obama to Trump phenomenon and what it had been about and the fixation with that, like there were, you know, there had been this kind of obsession with telling the story and all of this supposed data collection around it. Um, and we just felt like none of it was relying on actually talking to people. And we had just done 330 interviews and the stories that were being told did not resonate with the stories that we were hearing and the people that we were encountering. You're listening to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Melissa Weintraub, founder and co-executive director of Resetting the Table. I think journalism had a, a, a wake-up call in some ways after 2016. And I think this, this is to some extent reenacting now. Why were the polls so off? Maybe we're operating in a bubble. Maybe we don't know everything about what's happening in this country. We don't have our finger on the pulse of everything that's happening if this was so shocking to us and came out of left field for us. We walked away from that experience. We thought, what if journalists could be societal mediators instead of fueling conflict? Like journalists are positioned to be able to do exactly what mediators try to do which is to capture disparate parties accurately on their own terms, to be able to give people accurate, empathic, generous representation, as opposed to binning people as the worst possible version of themselves, to be able to crystallize and capture the fault lines and differences in America today. What are our national conflicts really about? What's underneath? Like if, if our conflicts play out and they're kind of the soil, like how could we get underneath that soil into what's really growing under, what are the motivations, the concerns, the humanity, the aspirations, what's underneath those conflicts as they're um, playing themselves out as they escalate? What if journalists were doing that like mediators do? And that would change how we see each other and it would help us to just be actually 
informed citizens and building a shared democracy, which is the role that we think the press could play. So that, that was our vision. The, the very skills that we teach our facilitators, which have to do with being able to excavate meaning, like what's really underneath what people are saying, being able to capture it accurately, being able to crystallize differences in a way that every party would say, yes, that's it. We thought, what if we could help journalists to do that better? That's the mirror that journalists should be holding up so that people say, I understand all of the contentious issues. I understand what we're really fighting about. I understand what's at stake at them. I understand the people on the other side of, of of those issues, and I'm not just seeing them as cartoonish caricatures. What have you discovered? Well, I'll say the successful piece, and then I'll say the challenging piece and what we've realized that we're up against. So the, the first training that we did was with the Solutions Journalism Network, and it was with uh, a group of really prestigious journalists, Pulitzer Prize winners, et cetera. You know, one of the things that we realized is that there is this kind of growing field of community listening forums and such among journalists, but journalists have never actually been trained to listen. So some journalists just, they were gravitated to the profession because they were good listeners and they, they already had this skill set and this disposition, but mediators are trained to listen and work at it. It's build it as a muscle. And we train facilitators intensively for months, if not years, to be able to do something like listen to someone and then capture what they just said. And we would put before this, this room, and this was true in other rooms as well, an evangelical pastor saying something and say, what did he just say? And they had no idea what he had just said. Like they could not, re they couldn't capture what he had just said without distortion and without incorporating all kinds of their own filter. They couldn't, they, they were editorializing in the process of just trying to capture like a very simple translation of what had just been said. So that's something that should just be part of training of journalists across the board. This is only one piece. But it's it's an important piece. There's really a systemic issue that most national media professionals are living in in urban and liberal concentrated areas. As you see, this is one of the things that really drives me. I know that there's all kinds of representation issues, but um, we saw we came to see through our work in the rest of the U.S. that this was a, this was one of the major systemic issues, and, and that what happens is because journalists are operating under a tremendous time pressure because the business model rewards clickbait and anxiety provoking headlines and simultaneously they have no time to let, as you were saying, to build relationships, to build relationships with sources before they need the source. They take all kinds of shortcuts. What we've come to see as drive-by journalism, um, they, you know, this kind of paint by numbers approach that creates all this flattening. So what does that, what does that mean? It means they want to find uh someone who opposes government shutdown they go to a shutdown protest and talk to the loudest person there because that's a shortcut but how do i find that person i haven't built relationships to be able to hear all the different reasons people might be critical about what's happening so i go to a shutdown protest or if i want to find someone who supports trump i go to a trump rally and then we get this kind of mindless faceless mob that's standing behind trump that when there are so many nuances of why someone chose to pull the trigger for Trump. And then yet again, in this election, we have so many people saying, how could this be? And, you know, how could 50% of our close to 50% of our population have voted for Trump and having no idea the answer to that question. And journalists are just doing a tremendous disservice by not answering that question. And a lot of it has to do with how journalism is practiced because of the time pressures. And like the lack of building real trusted relationships with a diversity of people who are coming at things 
with nuance and, and, and difference around those questions. Yeah. And also I would say to, in addition, yes. And, um, the, the beat structure that used to exist, um, a lot of the corporate owners, uh, because of the, because of the time and the resource pressures, uh, the beats had to kind of get cut and every journalist became a general assignment reporter. So those relationships that you would naturally build on a beat, you don't get to anymore. And, and you're just out covering the story, then that story, then this, and it is a pull here, pull there, get it on a lot of journalists. I, my, myself included, you know, you have to three stories a day done. It's great. I mean, I'm sure you've heard all of this, but you're right. That really is problematic when we're trying to inform the public, especially about issues that are so important to the very democracy. And then add to that this growing distrust, uh, which is, again, feeding a horrible feedback loop, has led people to sources that are, you know, absolutely not reputable. And yet they're speaking to the source in question, and that's really, really powerful. And so you're, you're right. It's so important to be able to listen, as you say. And you brought up, I love your distinction, because it's true. Journalists listen. They're tenacious. They want to get the story, but they don't listen as a mediator listens. They listen in a different way, and that's really really interesting distinction. I really love that. But this idea of, you know, the, the fractures in our society and, and we only see them getting bigger. You know, the work that Civity does to try to engage across these differences, the work that Resetting the Table is doing is, is I mean, obviously critical. Why would we both be spending time? And I actually wanted to ask you, what did bring you here? What, how did your journey bring you to Resetting the Table? I spent 25 years working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Working on that conflict... I came to see how when huge factions come to see one another as like in their gut as other and enemy to the point that they say there's no talking to them, they can only be vanquished, they can only be squelched. And uh, these kind of blanket generalizations about uh, another people without really knowing who they are, uh, that that often breeds all kinds of harm and violence. In 2016 began to see those same trends essentially happening here and realize that we may be degenerating into that level of social conflict, that level of intractable social conflict and even violence and that that toolkit needed to be brought here. Um, you know, I'll say like more personally, um, I, uh, I've always been a kind of um, dialogue uh, fiend, like dialogue has been my way of life from the time I was a small child. Like I grew up in a smallish town in the cornfields of central Illinois, um, very much red country, dominated by mega churches and one of the only Jewish families in that town. Uh, Anti-Semitism was alive and well in my town and in my childhood. There were crosses put in our front yard and many people praying for my soul, um, which I like to think did me some good, but that in some ways placed my experience closer to that of earlier generations. A lot of people um, in my generation didn't have such visceral experiences of anti-Semitism growing up. People react differently to those kinds of experiences, but I reacted by kind of becoming the spokesperson for the Jewish people by default. Really, I think enjoying representing and connecting to people who didn't have other Jewish people in their lives and having them under come to understand a lot about um, my story, my commitments, my my people's history, etc. Also, seeing the harms of not doing that, like how when people um, don't have those kinds of encounters that can transform them, both seeing the transformative potential of such human encounter 
and the harm that can ensue when people live in a vacuum of having such experiences and such encounters. I learned the importance of translation and engagement across difference and transformative, like the transformative potential of human encounter, essentially of human interaction across differences as ways of confronting any social ill and how many of the issues and problems that we face come from people lacking empathy and care for what others are experiencing in relation to those issues and just how important it is to, to build that empathy and care. That has driven, I think, my whole life's work. And um, I spent really all of my early adulthood and professional life doing various forms of dialogue and deliberation connected to social change. So uh, the, initially, a lot of that work was in African-American, Native American, and Latino communities that I got involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And all of that in a way that would have been very ironic to my younger self has led me into uh, now, like really seeing the kind of the patterns of the ways that conservatives and Christians, uh, particularly religious Christians in America today, experience some of those same dynamics of marginalization in relation to American institutions. And the importance of uh, like all of the same learnings about the, the dangers of living in a vacuum of real understanding of each other's stories, experiences, uh, realities, uh, and uh, the harms that that does in terms of supporting policies that take each other's needs and concerns and aspirations into account that they're playing themselves out now um, in ways that I never would have expected as a younger a younger person, but I see now that we are all kind of complicit in that machine, so to speak, in, in American political life today. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure you know about all this work. The studies on empathy, some of the studies I find most fascinating are that when we have empathy for our in-group, it can lead to lack of empathy for the out-group. And that's why I love what Resetting the Table is doing and what Civity is doing. Is it's, sort of, it's sort of opening up and expanding that bubble of empathy. As we said, we're, we don't want to, we don't want to belabor the fact that we're in a, a politically charged moment, but we, we are. So where do we go from here? What is the, what is the work that still needs to be done and how is resetting the table going about tackling this work? There is so much work that still needs to be done. <laughs> I think we're at the beginning of a 40 year cycle or say, so, you know, I mean, like this is the, this will be the work of the next generation as well. We are very broken. Um, the Democracy Funders Group just re released this rubric of three different um, pillars of relating to the work that needs to be done around democracy building that I found really helpful. Um, they, they talked about how there's the work of protecting democracy and that looks like protecting voting rights and preventing political violence and electoral transparency. Then there's the work of rebuilding democracy and a lot of the bridge building initiatives and dialogue work and um, electoral reforms, a lot of that fits into that pillar. And then there's the work of sustaining democracy ultimately. Uh, that's about transforming the way media happens and national service programs that get people out of their ideological and geographic silos and political silos and racial silos, all, all of the above to um, cross lots of lines of difference in American society. So like those, I, I think of all of those different pieces of work that need to be done. Um, the, the work that we are, are kind of spoke in the wheel uh, of, a, of a vast wheel is, is in that bridge building and, and dialogue space. And a lot of what I'm thinking about now is uh, this moment in American life. Um, I don't know how many listeners that this will speak to in terms of analogy, but it reminds me a lot of the early 2000s in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
where we were just uh, first waiting for violence and then the violence was happening. And there were all of these, these kinds of single stories about the other population um, that were vilifying and dehumanizing all Palestinians are terrorists, all Israelis are military imperialists who want to just violate human rights and um, care for no one suffering but their own, like these um, these very damaging assumptions and everyone kind of hungering for recognition of their own hopes and concerns and longings, like their, their national aspirations. Um, and recognition is really at the heart of that conflict. Um, and at the same time saying like, they will never re recognize my right to exist or the fundamental wrongs that they've committed. Um, and this time reminds me so much of, of that time. And one of the things that I learned through working on that conflict is to show and not tell. I can say conservatives aren't the demons that you think they are, but that actually will mostly just spark resistance and anger. And it's far more effective to show and not tell. Um, and so the work that that I ended up doing around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, instead of telling Israelis and American Jews, Palestinians aren't the demons you think they are, just bringing people on the bus to meet with Palestinian activists on the ground and to realize Palestinians are not the demons that you think they are. I don't have to tell you. If you meet with them and you stay overnight in their homes and you listen to their stories and you experience the policies that you support as they impact them, like that's going to change you. And so I think something really similar needs to happen in the U.S. instead of saying they're not the demons you think they are. Um, this is why we've turned to film and why we're trying to impact journalism, because there can be showing and not telling through film and through journalism if we get uh, journalists on board with um, relating to their own others better. Oh, I yes, so true. If we're not going to really look at whatever it is, if we're not going to really look at how evangelicals feel or, or feel that they're being treated, if we're not going to look at exactly what happened in our history, if we're not going to look at exactly what people's experiences are, then we're never going to be able to solve it. And we're going to carry around our own negativity toward that. And so, so in addition to sort of healing so that people feel accepted, it's like, I almost wonder if it's in part healing ourselves too, if we can get at these issues. And even like with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like certainly the Palestinians as the minority group without the power are being hurt. But I would also argue that the Israelis are being hurt too because they're holding on to this feeling about uh, feeling threatened or feeling um, uh, negative about something. Whereas if we can communicate across these differences and divides and give each other humanity, we can let go of some of that and become whole again. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're talking about is the heart of truth and reconciliation work on some level. Like ultimately, uh, there is an element of everyone has to confront their own their own history and their own complicity and their own implication to be able to be liberated. That it's not just the oppressed that needs to be liberated, but the oppressor as well. I will say that both in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in terms of the political divides in the U.S., I think of it as more of a system of conflict than an oppressor, oppressed, or persecuted victim dynamic. Even though there is asymmetries of power, and it's important to recognize the asymmetries of power, there's also a system of conflict at play in which the very ways that each each side kind of seeks to protect itself from the other and the way that it sees the other is exactly what perpetuates the worst behaviors. But like each side is inspiring the worst behaviors of the other in part through their perceptions of who the other is, which is precisely what's happening now in the US as well. 
And what happens in every conflict spiral? You know, my husband, who's also the co-founder of Resetting the Table, has worked in criminal court. And these are the, the dynamics that happen in criminal court too. You talk to one person and the other person seems like they're utterly vile and monstrous. And then you talk to that person and an entirely different story emerges. And um, each side kind of justifies their own worst behavior in the name of self-protection because of who the other is. And that's that's what ha has happened in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I see that happening in the U.S. as well. Yeah. And so resetting the table strategy of let's bring people together, let's bring people face to face and through a structured uh, pathway, help people start having that conversation. And I think civity is the same. We call it the conversation before the conversation. It's like see each other's full humanity and then we can get to work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Recognition and empathy are huge. The lack of recognition for who the other is doesn't allow us to do the work. Every organization approaches this work in a slightly different ways. And you talked about creating content, uh, bringing people together in workshops, and the power of storytelling, which for Civity, the power of storytelling is also central. But talk a little bit about specifically your strategies for doing this work. Sometimes we summarize our methodology with the acronym MODES, which stands for multiplicity, ownership, directness, expressiveness, and stabilization. It's really, that's a mouthful, but I'll just, I'll share a few of those principles and kind of the pedagogical principles of our work and of our methodology. The core of it is about directness and stabilization and expressiveness to a lesser extent. So what do we mean by expressiveness? Storytelling is a component of that. It's about uh, all of the parts of us that tend to be obscured when we just start with contentious issues, charged issues, and the conversation goes off the rails. So it's about bringing our underlying motivations and concerns and humanity and life, formative life experiences um, onto the table. And storytelling is a great way to do that. Um, we do see that as kind of the, the first stage of the work and not the, the end stage, but we, we begin with storytelling. Uh, and then most of our work centers on what I was calling directness and stabilization. So that's about getting at the differences um, finding where are we different rather than th there's an expectation that we should go towards common ground and commonality. And, um, you know, sometimes when this work gets talked about in a popular sense, people talk about like, we have to reclaim common ground, but we found that, and this, this comes from a field of mediation that we draw from called transformative mediation, that differences will always come out destructively if they're not dealt with constructively. Um, relationships get stronger when we actually talk about our differences and tackle them as opposed to tiptoeing around them or being afraid of the elephants in the room. We train our facilitators first and foremost to be able to capture differences. We have several exercises through which we find what are the fault lines that are most charged in this room. We want to bring those out into the open. We, so we go towards them and virtually everything that we do. What matters the most to the people here that divides them? And that's what we want to investigate and tackle, but to do so with um, what we call stabilization. So stabilization is also a mediation term, and it essentially means we're overcoming all the core tendencies of conflict. So um, we're in conflict, we tend to get self-absorbed. We get cut off from the experience of others. We tend to get rigid. We dig into our own position. We get uh, reactive and weak um, and overwhelmed. We use a lot of language like um, I was out of control or I wasn't the person I wanted to be. The interventions and process design that we use is focused on shifting people from self-absorption to reconnection so that they feel connected to each other, even while they're going towards the heat of their differences, from rigidity into flexibility and receptivity. So 
while we're talking about what's hard, we overcome, we can overcome our confirmation bias and motivated reasoning to take each other in information and ideas and people that we would have otherwise dismissed. And we can be the best version of ourselves instead of the reactive version of ourselves. We're centered and we're calm. So um, the training our facilitators get is all about achieving those shifts in the course of workshops and, and forums. That is hard work too, because we so cling to our perspectives. And it's hard for any of us to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, or I made a mistake. It's, it, that's so hard, e even if you are used to the work. And um, and so I think naming it, as you say, being deliberate and intentional about having it explicitly named as part of the process is a very powerful thing, I think, because it gives people permission to do it. Oh, I have permission to let this go just in this space, just to try. That's wonderful that you have that strategy. And activity as well, like naming, being intentional about whatever it is, is a good way to address it. And also going at the differences, you know, rather than trying to pretend like it's all good. And through that, through going at the differences, you do realize, my God, we agree on most of this uh, often, often. Uh, I've changed my mind about something. Outcome does happen, but it is more rare than a whole other set of things that emerge for people when they can be receptive to each other, like people realize. I've been framing issues poorly on which I am acting as an act activist. I'm doing this ineffectively. I will never be able to reach anyone who doesn't already agree with me if I keep framing it in that way. Um, or uh, like I, I simply understand um, I can I've stepped into that lens enough to understand how someone could see it that way and how they're not they're not, they're reasonable and they're reachable. And now I know. That if I want to be persuasive in relation to them, I'm going to be talking to them and not past them. And I see the ways that we can work together and also the ways that we're coming at this fundamentally differently and we're never going to agree. And that is okay. We may still be on opposite sides of the advocacy table on abortion or on another issue. But I, um, I see where we can work together. And I also see the uh, integrity of their position um, enough that, that I will no longer say things that are, that are fundamentally dehumanizing towards them. So tell me about the film, maybe summarize it a little and what the reasons why you put it together. Film is um, is an amazing tool for proxy journeys. Um, we knew that we couldn't bring everyone across the country, you know, even pre-COVID onto um, on airplanes. And um, film is a way to lift us out of our like-minded enclaves and um, allow us to cross psychic distances of, of background and point of view and um, just get a little window into what it's like to be other people. We were inspired by a radio soap opera in Sierra Leone um, in the aftermath of the Civil War there that told the story of opposing parties in, in relationship, and 90% of the population ended up tuning into that show, and it was credited with de-escalating violence. Um, and there's other examples of this in other parts of the world, the ways that this kind of content can play a rehumanizing role that many of the people that we may have written off are complex and reasonable and reachable people just like us, even if we do still have profound and important disagreements. Um, so we thought, what if there could be a show that would draw from mediation techniques and bring together opposing characters uh, to investigate their differences head on and talk to rather than past each other and see the motivations and concerns and humanity underneath each other's positions. We began with a short film called Purple that is available on YouTube. It's being distributed all over the country by churches and synagogues and high schools um, and middle schools, uh, campuses, libraries, 
it depicts a group in this area of rural Wisconsin and Iowa where we've done so much work. Everyday people, charismatic everyday people, I should say, um, investigating their differences and coming to see the concerns and humanity underneath each other's positions and um, modeling what fault line, uh, what a conversation, a healthy debate on fault line issues can look like. Um, and, um, and one of our secondary objectives was to give more textured representation to rural people um, than the often flattened and distorting ways that, um, then that rural people are depicted. Uh, so that's um, a piece of the film. You know, we've gotten ample reminders that our national political conversation has, you know, every time we think it's hit rock bottom, it just gets worse, I should say. <laughs> so healthy investigation of our differences as Arthur Brooks has said, it's like the product that 90% of people want but don't believe exists. And part of the point of the film is also to show people that it does, ex that it, it can exist. This is desirable. This is possible. One of the most common outcomes from people who've watched it has simply be to, been to say it's restoring their faith in humanity and restoring their faith in our capacity to do this work, that we can touch our differences and we can come out the other side. So we hope that some people who are listening will consider showing it, um, watching it yourselves, sharing it with your with your networks. That's how we get ripple effects and how it spreads, and more people um, realize that we can we can have these conversations interpersonally, and we can also restore this kind of conversation publicly. That's why this work is so critical to help us understand that and get through it, and get past it, or deal with it. Thank you to my guest Melissa Weintraub, founder and co-executive director of Resetting the Table. To learn more about Resetting the Table and to view the film Purple, which uncovers the humanity beneath our national conflicts, go to resettingthetable.org slash purple. This is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. Civity's theme song is Common Ground, performed by Tommy Castro and the Painkillers written by Tommy Castro and Kevin Bowe, and used courtesy of Alligator Records and Dangerous Entertainment. Thank you for listening to This Is Civity. Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co.